G'day, it's Phil here. Last time we began the roller coaster ride with Graham Brown Martin, and we started to explore the development of his voice. We looked at the way in which he didn't quite fit, and yet from not quite fitting, then found himself at the centre of the music industry in the 1990s and prophesying what was to come next. I loved the conversation we had last time. I can't wait <laughs> to talk more. I'm super excited. Let's go. Before you start your conversation with today's Game Changers guest, Phil, could you tell us a little bit about our Series 10 sponsor? Of course, Adriano. Over the past decade, the team from A School for Tomorrow has been working with hundreds of thousands of members of school communities across the world to think about the character of an excellent education. They've concentrated their learning about what makes a school thrive into a unique suite of digital survey tools called Thriving for students, teachers, and schools. To learn how you can help your school measure how well it's achieving its purpose, go to aschoolfortomorrow.com forward slash thriving. Let's go. The Graham. Be best mate. <laughs> I might be coming down your way, actually, Phil, so I'll look you up. <laughs> oh, excellent. I can't wait. I absolutely can't wait. I'm, I'm, I, I, live in the, I live in the home of one of the last live music scenes in Australia. Oh, it's one of the few places where the poker machines haven't taken over. So it's an awesome, awesome um, part of the world, the People's Democratic Republic of Fitzroy, as our listeners know. Um, I want to talk about the way in which you move from the world of music to the world of education in this part of the conversation. And I want to focus on agency because there you are, you're starting to develop a sense of yourself and then you're starting to do things with that. When did you discover that you could really do stuff, not just talk it, but actually do it? Yeah, I mean, I suppose really quite early on. I mean, you know, I guess part of my you know, background was that um, it's sort of fairly kind of a working class background, aspiring middle class, insofar as my parents had ran businesses, you know, self-employed small businesses. So um, I, my father was an engineer, really, and he had, a, you know, had a garage for fixing cars. I mean, it wasn't like one of these posh, shiny ones, but it was a good garage, you know, did, did all that kind of stuff. And so, you know, they also had a taxi company and things like that. I mean, I didn't mention that because, you know, I was in, in an environment where that was what you did. Uh, you know, you, you created your own ship and you sailed it and all those kinds of things. I sort of now realise again in reflection that, it, you know, my parents are also neurodiverse. Um, and, you know, obviously that, you know, didn't exist when, when they were kids. It didn't exist when I was a kid. So it was never picked up. But I think on reflection, I could see that how that would have created employment problems for them as well and, and, and like that stuff and but not stupid they still create things so I came from a sort of you know business oriented I mean like businesses with a small b I mean like small business you know family local businessy type thing but it did sort of set that kind of thing that you you, you, know, you do things you get off your ass and do things kind of thing that was how it was described to me and and, and be, be, be into me and I suppose you know the first kind of thing of actually doing something making something selling something was 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 playing in my you know laboratory that I set up in the family home but it was in the old garage because they moved to a kind of commercial space and they weren't around much so I had kind of time on my hands um loneliness um I mean I have friends but it was I was friendship was kind of weird growing up and so then I had that focus I had that hyper, hyper focus as I studied but you know, quite early. 
and it, the, the, the sort of the, the, the music industry to, to, to um, education actually was kind of started off in kind of a weird way. I mean, I remember the last program um, was that, you know, I, I lived in a squat and then wanted to move out of there. And this job came up at the Open University for a lab technician, which I, you know, I thought, well, I know my way around a chemistry set, so I can do that. But there was, it was a, a great panel interview. Uh, very famous people. I didn't know at the time. It's the first interview I've ever been to. Um, and, the, and they were there because they heard that they did a story uh, in the newspapers and stuff like that. And, and they, they, they were very forward thinking and progressive and didn't see that was an obstacle for me at my employment. In fact, they saw it as a benefit. So that's you know, how I got in, 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 into that first job. It, it, it's, it, it's weird because it's kind of like happenstance. I just find myself in these situations um, with often generous, smart, interesting people that would would help sometimes there would be obstacles but but not the not the actual people that were doing things just the kind of the kind of almost like the royal families or the oh no the entourage that you get around you know smart going places type type people that were the were that made the obstacles so so i guess um, i guess i guess if my point in our first conversation was about the development of voice as an outsider i i think that what I'm trying to explore here in this second part of the conversation is the development of agency through network. And all of this, of course, is pointing towards the future of work, isn't it? That, yeah. That, you know, so, yeah, so, so, so there you are, you've got a network of people who, who are finding a way to, to connect with you and to make the most of the talents that you've got. But at the same time, you're also starting to discover that you can do stuff. And to to make stuff happen. Well, yeah. I think that was it. I think I think there's a, there's a kind of uh, that that belief in a system. You know, you, you, it's like standing outside a system and think, okay, I don't quite know how that works. I don't quite know how they got that got there. But or, and it may be that I, what they're saying doesn't. I don't care how they got there. But what they're saying isn't right. And and then being able to prove that or disprove that. I mean, some people are quite cool with that. What I was saying earlier is like you know. Some of the people that are secure in their own knowledge, in their own position, everything else, they don't mind being, you know, their self-esteem doesn't depend upon being right. But then the ones that aren't quite so sure become more problematic. And, you know, my thing was, you know, it's hard to, it's, it, it's hard to describe it because it's the only way I see it, Phil. It's like, it, you know what I mean? I just sort of describe it in, a, in, in some way that suddenly, oh, I get what he means. But it's just sort of seeing something in front of you and then just just, it's joining up lots of dots and then, going with it and then being having the confidence to do it i suppose that's what you mean by, by by agency and i was fortunate very early on that those around me i mean the open university for example i mean i was like 17 or something i was working with some who are now i mean very i mean even then but now you know well-known academic scientists in genetics and this is pre-genome uh, projects but it, but 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 related and you know, I, I got I got involved in working in this kind of research way with you know Drosophila, throat flies, and, and pattern determination, and and working out what how to get bithorax and trithorax fruit flies. Hope your listeners aren't listening to this at breakfast. But I, I saw I was looking at helping with Dr. May Wan Ho there, who's still still well known, and thinking, okay, we can do this differently. We can we can do some determination. We can do some prediction about what's going to happen with these on 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 the mainframe computer. Uh, for those listening, these were computers that took up a whole house that had less power than your phone that you're listening to this on. By the way, and it, it's not like I'd done it before. I just knew it could be done, and then I would do it. So here's the thing. All right, again, and I, I'm, and I'm drawing a bow here. 
Please um, do, because I may not be bringing it to where you want to be. No, 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 no. We're, we're going to take this to where we end up. With We're not going to okay, take this to right. a place that we want it because we're, we're, yeah. we're being historians here, not geographers. We're not proposing okay. our hypothesis and proving it. Right. We're being inductive and just moving our way forward through the conversation. Nice. Yeah. Um, there's that development of that voice. There's that development of that that sense of who I am and where I stand in the world and then to help me develop that sense of where I fit in, I have to be able to see things. I can't see things and if that voice hasn't been allowed to flourish along the way. I need to be able to see what the patterns are. I need to be... It's Minsberg, the great writer on strategy, talks about the seeing above, seeing below, seeing beside and seeing through. So what you're doing is seeing through where we are now to where it needs to get to and you're, you can envisage something. And then, as you said, you can join the dots. Okay, but, but, so, so something that, I, that, that was, was um, shown to me by, by, I mean, I have, a, I have a psych team that supports my coaching practice. That's not the psych team to look after me, it's the psych team to look after my clients and make sure I don't malpractice because I'm not a, not a clinician. Um, but nevertheless, very interesting. And there's this, there's this thing that it's kind of interesting, actually, um, called perceptive observational analysis. And it's something about how neurodiverse brains work, particularly those that are, uh, and actually, if, you, if you're autistic, 70% of autistics are ADHD and I think vice, I mean, vice versa. But anyway, and those two things are very linked. Um, there is a comorbidity, isn't there? It, well, it's not just comorbidity. I think it's much more, but it's much deeper than that. I think we're about on it. It's a whole other show. Um, but the, the, the thing is, perceptual observational analysis is this kind of idea. I know we've heard of T-shaped learners, um, but this is just a default position for some brains and minds, one of them, which is not just T-shaped. But it's like it's very broad, very deep, but it, it, it's, it's you know, disciplines or subjects or areas that are typically siloed. I mean, the education system is all about siloing and specialization. Everything else is why it's dead and why it doesn't work for the future work. But... The, what tends to happen is you have these special interests. And what I realize now in reflection is that these are all special interests. These are things that, that became, I didn't have a choice. It's not like I woke up and go, yeah, I don't want to do that. More like, if it's not my special interest, I don't want to do it. And sometimes I can't do it. You know, it's almost a kind of pathological demand avoidance, which is, I know I want to do it, but I can't do it because I'm interested in this. And so I would go through a lot of those special subjects. You do that for life. Now, what happens then is, is as you get older, because that's all stuff is very is still live in your head, not live in the, I think, in the way that your memories work, but it's there. When I'm sleeping or when I'm just, I mean, when I'm not aware of it, my brain is, is joining up dots between those, dis, those different silos of information and knowledge and experience. Very rapidly. I'm not even aware of it. It's not like I'm sitting and consciously trying to join up the dots. People think, oh, yeah, wow, that's really clever. How do you do that? I have no idea is the answer. It just happens. It just it happens. It's spontaneous. And of so it does. this depth, and it's it's a blessing because you see the connections with things, and then it's so obvious. Why can't you see this? Why can't anybody else see this? And that's what it's been like all my life, Phil. And just and actually, as you get older, it gets worse, funny enough, because you're still learning stuff. And but it's also difficult because when you're in a situation where you're trying to exercise that voice. Say, you know, I mean, starting a business, I started businesses, lots of fast growth businesses. You would, you would attract all this interest because you're saying something new and it's interesting and it's different and, and, and I'm passionate about it. And you, you attract money 
And then you'd be in, in meetings and, and they'd say, well, look, this is what's going to happen. Because you talked about prediction and foresight. The problem is, is that I, I, I've been ridiculously accurate throughout my entire life. I've been ridiculous. And that's disturbing to me now, actually. Um, because what tends to happen is we get into conversations with investors, and I'm just saying that, but also, you know, policymakers and whatever, but just the investor one. And they go, yeah, yeah, okay, you said that conclusion. You said that it's going to end up there. I mean, you could look at a video we did for Ammo City, um, which is a, a thing we did in the 90s, and, and then think about the metaverse. I mean, it, it, it's, oh. Yeah, 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 right? absolutely. But the point, the point is, so, so then what will happen is, is that they'll, they'll challenge me, of course, because it's like, look, I've just given you 10 million quid, Graham. Tell me why you think that. And they go, well, okay, I can, um, but I can't do it in a 10-minute TED Talk. It's not a sentence. It's, it's not, you know, the player. It's not 24 words or less. I can tell you, but we're going to have to go deep on this, and we're going to have to go deep on this, and we're going to have to go deep on this, and then we'll do, do the connection. So if you've got a couple of hours or maybe a day free, we can go through it all. And, of course, there's no way of saying that without it sounding arrogant, you know. Yeah, and, unless you're right. And, and that's what Unless happens, you're right, you know, and, that's, to, and, that's, and that's uh, well, the problem. But the thing is, is that you're, you're, when you're looking at something that, you know, I, I've lost count of the number of people, Phil, you know, shareholders, government people, friends, who go, you know what, 10 years ago you said this, I didn't know what the hell you were talking about, it just sounded crazy, but now I see it. And I know this sort of sounds like some kind of like, oh, crystal ball, aren't they clever? It's not, it doesn't feel like, it doesn't not feel like that. No, but, that's, but, that's why, but that's why we're having the conversation. Man. That's, and that's, and that's, why, that's why I was silly enough to frame the whole thing around the notion of prophecy to start with, because we've got, to get to, we've got to get to a space which is not about a false humility around this sort of thing. Mm. Um, I have a theory about education, which is that what it, it's the things with, that we do at the margins for people who are three, four, five standard deviations from the mean that test our ability to cater to the majority in the middle. So when we come across somebody who is unusual in some way, shape or form, and that that notion of being unusual, you know, we, we talked about the outsider last time, you know, it's, it's, a, it's mm. a challenging thing. It's a challenging thing to be in that role. It's a challenging thing to apprehend that role. You know, you're dealing with someone who's not quite like you and you don't quite know how to deal with that. A lot of people within the education system instinctively aggregate around the middle and insist that everybody must have the same experience of learning. And that if we flip that around the other way and we say, let's study what's happening at the margins, then by studying what happens at the margins, we're going to be able to influence the centre much more effectively. If we can't personalise around the margins, we're never going to be able to personalise in the centre. If we can't yeah. do compassion around the margins, we're never going to be able to do compassion in the centre. Right. If, we, if we can't do systems that can cope with the margins, then we can't talk about what the centre looks like. And the world we live in now, there is no great mid-20th century average. It doesn't exist. We said last time, the model is broken. It's been broken. Oh, I, was, I, don't, I, don't, I don't think it was ever, it was ever, it was ever whole. I mean, I, I think it's an no, illusion, no, to be honest. No, no, no. Look, it was, it was the best attempt that people could come up with. What we realise now is that whatever is happening in our world right now, our education system can't keep up with it. Well, to be honest, I, I don't think it was the best. I think it was a cynical I think what happened with cynical. I think what's been happening with, the, with with where work is. I know we want to talk about the future work in a, in a in an show, and 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 so I'm looking forward to that. But it's like, it's it, it, I, I think no, I, I don't agree. I, I think this idea that it was the best that we could do is just nonsense. 
I think it was, it was just, it was a deliberate um, subversion of the human spirit. And well, I, you better I, talk. I, you better talk me uh, through that in in a hundred words or less, my friend. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's like I'm trying to do that sort of like preempting all the future work type stuff. But you know, we are human beings. I mean, the only thing about us is that we're all different. I mean, you know, the fact that I had to talk about like the way I see the world as if it's some oddity. It's just frankly, I mean, not to you, Phil, but it's it's crazy that I I, I would need to do that. I mean, it, it sort of presupposes that you see it in a particular way, as as and 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 there's a whole group of people that see things in a particular way. And I don't, I don't, I don't subscribe to that. You know, I think that the diversity of thinking and and perceiving and sensing the world that all of us have is what makes us human and what makes us the successful species that we are and potentially extinct. But I think that the, you know. We what we do very, very well is we naturally think creatively, we're natural problem solvers. Um, you know, we naturally see things about how to make things better. That's what I believe that's what we do naturally. Um, you know, and we could look up to sort of agricultural ages and all so forth, and you're a historian, so you can correct me on all of this stuff. But it struck me that it, during those periods, you know, craft. You know, we think about like cottage industries and, 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 and those things where everything was made, you know, with hopefully love, you know, put love in it. I'm just a hippie. But, um, you know, if you want to get a shirt made or a suit or some bread or whatever, it would be made. And there'll be somebody within a, in, that, in, in, in your locale that does that and, and does it in craft. You know, we had this massive kind of transition, this transformation of craft production to mass production that came with industrialization. But that could only work, you know, the only point of doing that is only if you could do it at scale. Now, the whole point of these things is that they're not supposed to be at scale. I mean, give you an example. You know, if you're a black woman and you're trying to buy jeans, because of standardization, they're shaped in a particular way, so they don't really fit anyone. Well, no chance, so, no I mean, chance, no chance fit anybody. I mean, but, the whole I was married to, to, to a black woman. I mean, just, you know, I just, it comes up, just the, the, the amount of ventures we have just trying to buy jeans because of, because of shapes, because okay. this industrialization, standardization of everything is trying to, 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 to okay. create this. Let, let, me, let me pose a counter argument to that. Okay. So, so let me take you back to the 1970s and Bronowski's The Ascent of Man. All right, glorious, glorious. Yeah, um, I remember that on TV. Proposition, of t- t- television series, wonderful expose of thinking about the notion of progress in humanity um, and doing it in a very humane way. Bronowski posited that one of, the, one of the singular advances of the Industrial Revolution was the invention of cheap cotton underwear, which meant that for the very first time, human beings could have a layer between themselves and the outside world. And that just improved sanitation. So on the one hand, we've got clothes that don't fit and so they don't satisfy the personal, but then you've got the system that can create a public benefit, which benefits most. And I would argue, I would argue that public education follows very, very closely on that. Okay, so let me, let me, let me pick up on that, on that challenge. It's a good challenge. I don't disagree. Um, you know, it's like I think it's sometimes these these arguments can be advanced as if they're sort of polar opposites. You know, it, you know. So when you start criticizing the economic design, and that's what it is. Economics is just design. It's it's a, it's a it's a it's a you know, it's a social science. It's it's not a sort of a hard science. It's a 
it's about design, right? So we can, we can, we can we talk about the design, the flaws in the design and the kind of unexpected consequences of the design or, or, or you know, economy or, or industrialization, you know, it becomes polar. It's like, oh yeah, it's all bad. Of course it's not bad. I mean, if we hadn't had those industrial revolutions, we'd be sitting here having this conversation, Phil, over, you know, over the air, you know, in video and audio. So it's a huge, 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 huge benefits to large um, parts of, well, you know, to, to parts of society. Let's not say large, because, you know, we're not, we're, we live in the minority world. You do, I do. We're not in the majority world, right? We're the minority world. A majority, I mean, we used to call the kind of the first world, the third world, but that, you know, that, these are bad terms. We really think about minority and majority world. My point really is, is that, that yes, of course, all that happened, but, but the cost of that, justice of the economy, the, the, cost, the, the cost is not in the purchase price. You know, the cost was this radical standardization of everything, including people. You know, the, the education systems then um, designed as they are now um, to output human capital. For the economic development plan that's the purpose of education we're not talking about teaching or learning because that has nothing to do with education education is a, it, it is about like, this is we need this we need this in order for our society to you've, flourish you've, and you've, right. you've, you've left out another important purpose of education i'm sure i have which is to employ people yeah yeah, yeah. i mean it's, it's part of that it's source of employment that then produces good productive people yes. who are then going to fit into of course, the economy. of course of course good citizens highly highly pragmatic approach well, right. highly pragmatic highly pragmatic and does not take into account the nature of humans you so know we tell are... me about the nature of humans and well, tell me about education that meets the nature of humans okay so so again i'm just throwing this out rather than a sort of academic tracks you know when a period of time when we you say the agricultural eras, um, cottage industries, and so on, um, you know, kids might not be at school, but do we think they weren't learning? Well, of course, they were learning. You know, learning lots of things. I mean, I didn't go to school that much, and I, I was learning, so I, I don't think that's the that's the argument. But um, what they what they were most likely learning was 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 a craft within wherever they you know like within a family or or or, or what have you in. in that, that they could be doing. Now, you don't want that in an industrial society as much. So what you want is, is young people to be trained to be more structured, to be this good citizen for this new society. Now, this is much more nuanced than that. Okay, so, but, but, but the, 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 the direction of flow is in that sort of way. It's like we, we want kids, we want people who can follow instructions, can store information in their head, um, can do mental arithmetic, all those kinds of things. But it's also behavioural. You know, we want, want people to be able to do... Now, if you look at factories or offices or hospitals or schools or any institution, and even Illich pointed this out in the 70s, you know, when he wrote the book Deschooling Society, he was talking about institutionalization of everything. And it, it follows this very systematic way of doing things. And it also fit into that, to fit into that. You know, for example... The point I mentioned earlier, all of them rely on you being able to do repetitive tasks, the same thing day in, day out, eight hours a day, five days a week, maybe you get weekends off, maybe if you're lucky, get four weeks off, holiday, all that kind of thing. But it, it's you're rewarded for your consistency. We valued consistency. We valued consistency coming out of the education system. We valued consistency in the workforce and everything else. And that is groovy. That's what got us here. You know, we out of that, you know, the, the very first management consultants, you know, like Frederick Taylor, Ketterle, all these kinds of idiots um, who just thought they could just measure everything 
and then scale it up. And we did, I mean, we built cars and all that kind of stuff. The good thing about all those job descriptions and stuff that have been written, you know, with the idea that you make a company a bit like the, 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 the back wall that I can see behind you. So all these, you know, we want a product manager, we want a software engineer, we want a teacher, the boxes, and not people, they're descriptions of function. Now that is a computer program. And so the, the interesting thing now, as we move into the future, is that all those boxes, anything, anything that can be described will be automated or there'll be an attempt to automate, because actually that's what that was all about, was producing robots, low-cost labor. We don't want um, highly skilled labor doing something which can be done in a production line, and that, that, that's the office or, 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 or the factory. But the, the, the point I'm making is that, that if you want to then succeed in that society, you go with that. I mean, you know, if you want to make money as an entrepreneur, do something that reinforces the status quo. Doing something disruptive is harder. It might end up with great, you know, big results at the end, but, but also a greater, you know, great, greater opportunity for failure. Now, my point is, is that we are now at this inflection point where we've been so clever with that industrial model. I mean, it's had, it's had negative effects. You know, people like me fell out the system. A lot of people like me fell out the system. And, you know, you, you look at the sort of who's who of, of who shaped the 21st century and the end of the 20th century, and you'll find that the majority of them are diverse. You know, we're talking everyone from like Steve Jobs to Eminem, uh, Anthony Hopkins, Joe Malone, uh, Sergey and Larry. I mean, it's, 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 it's big like that. But the issue is, is that this, now we get to the point where if we can replace all these functions and machines, what is it that we're actually looking for? Well, we're looking for creative innovators. We're back to kind of where we were. Um, you know, sort of hunter-gatherers, all that kind of stuff. It was those that, that, that were just innately um, creative and innovative, perhaps a little bit you know, less structured. And where we are now is that we, we've got to this point where, yes, we had this growth through standardization across everything. And now it's like, oh, what's going to happen now? So tell me how we educate for that. So what we, what we don't do is educate for a you know for, for a, a a job description. Now, yeah, I, and, of, and look, can I just say you you got me on the job description bit. The last time I had a real job before I started but, running my own show, but, I had a nine and a half page job description. I never read all of it. I got four pages in, and and I just said, look, no one can do all of this. And by the time I finish reading it, the job description will have changed. So you know, I'll just do. I'll just work out what I need. No, to no, it's, it's cool. But here's the here's the thing. Here's the thing. Um, we are actually double. I think a lot of people kind of see that argument that I just advanced. But but what, what's happening is now we are really doubling down on this thing. So if we look at like design of the digital world, currently we use some a design philosophy called skeuomorphism. Skeuomorphism is where we, we, we mimic what's in the real world, in the digital world, so we can understand it. So we're doing this, so you create an online bank, or you create an online telephone, or you create an on, you know, we use uh, envelopes to do email and stuff. It's what we're used to. So we're in this term of, the time of skeuomorphism. If you look at the jobs market, so if, you, you're, if you're doing hiring now, if you're actually going, wanted to get a job, you could go to a, a big aggregator like Hired, Com. I'm not picking on them. I'm just giving an example. And when you go there and you want to submit your CV, you get a whole bunch of drop-down menus of things you can be. Sector, job title, 
level, etc. That granularity of what you could be in the world has been set by a software engineer or a team or whatever, but there it is, right? You have to be one of those things. You can't be, you know, if you're, there's no box that says creative technologist. So what am I? Now, the issue with that, okay, well, so, but the point is, is that that then determines the, the jobs that are available through that system. It then determines what kind of education systems that we might want in order for you to fill those boxes. From my perspective and from my experience around this sort of thing, people who build these systems are usually the worst qualified people to identify the options that should, if, even if you subscribe to drop-down menus, which I don't, because as I said earlier, man, I'm, I'm inductive. I'm, you know, we work our way forward, et cetera, et cetera. But the people who design the systems are the worst qualified people to specify the content of the drop-down menus because they're not interested in the content. They're interested in the flow of the system. So it will work for them if you tick one of eight options. But at no point are they sitting there and going, well, is that the right option? You know, it's, it's, exactly you know, right. it, it's, you know, it's, it's like trying to work out an algorithm for finance where you know we, we give people loans on the basis of their of their postcode and their and usually their family's prior credit record when we know that past performance is no predictor of future performance. In fact, every financial investment portfolio will, will give you that disclaimer and they will say don't judge us on our past performance because there's no guarantee of the future but we'll only loan you money on that basis like it doesn't work does it but but you can design a system that will bounce people through a hamster wheel and 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 various different hoops that will get them to the other end but it doesn't work and the truth is we've been using these kinds of systems for for decades it's just now that we're doing it at such large scale and you know so many, I mean, most perhaps employers are now using some form of algorithmic uh, decision making before they start looking at resumes. Um, and, we're, you know, we're not far from a point where, um, you know, you won't have to look at them at all. That hands over. And you just said about those engineers that are making that aren't, aren't the sharpest penny, perhaps. Sorry, engineers. But, you know, but, but the collateral damage of this at Internet scale cannot be uh, under emphasized i think i think it's it, it's 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 a much bigger problem than people imagine and it's and it's not being recognized so i want to come back just Go before we finish this that, conversation and, and i want to say if you're and I, your dog <laughs> i don't know who's behind me you're looking at your, your bulldog or your stereo. my Safi is snoring very very happily oh, right, oh, cool, cool, cool. right now um uh because that's what Safi should be doing at this time of night I want to ask you, how do we educate for agency with all of this going on? How do we educate for humanity? I mean, in a way, that's what education is for, isn't it, agency? We say that, you know. Not sure we believe it, um, but, 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 but we say it. Um, you know, because actually if we don't have agency, and this notion of agency is becoming more important, I think, Phil, and I'm glad that you, you raised it a few times. Um, because we know that, for example, when you take employment, we know, the, we know what happens when, when large parts of the population don't have agency. You know, give example, you know, I mean, it's like, you know, give a UK example. It's like, you know, we, that whole manufacturing conversation about that transition from, that, from craft to mass production, you know, that then went through the phase in the sort of, you know, uh, around the 70s and, so, and, and onwards in the United Kingdom where we started shutting down manufacturing, uh, particularly in the north of England and everything else. 
which is fair enough. I mean, you know, it, the whole point of that whole process, that, that, that industrial process was to reduce costs to be able to make more profits and market share for products that we were making. So having them made, having, de having designed and written the job descriptions to be able to then transfer that to somewhere where the people holding those job descriptions cost less, you know, cheaper, cheaper labor. So like moving it off to say China, for example, for manufacturing made, you know, made a lot of good sense. And so when Thatcher decided to, you know, wanted to close down the mines in the North, which is highly controversial to large members of the population in this country, it, 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 was, it was a very tough thing to do. And she might have been right, but what, what, what wasn't right was that we didn't think about what we would do with the people that no longer were no longer employed. Sounds obvious, but we didn't. Same thing happened in America, um, you know, in Detroit and all those kinds of things. Now, by not doing anything, by leaving it, by not then thinking, okay, what kind of education do we need now? Because the future's, the future's different from the one that we educated these people for. Nothing happened. What then happens, of course, is that you then end up having generations of unemployed. And if you're unemployed, or your, your, you know, your, your, your uh, income is precarious. You lose your voice in society. You don't have agency. You don't feel like you have agency. You become what Guy Standing, Professor Guy Standing from London School of Economics called the precariat, you know, with a salariat if you have a job precariat. Well, you see, okay, that sounds funny, that's clever. But then think what happens, you can weaponize, and through history, those at the other end of the scale, have weaponized the precariat. And we saw that in sharp relief. We are seeing that in sharp relief across Europe and in America in, in the way that the political landscape changed and has changed. And you know, we've, we've seen Johnson in the UK, probably the most corrupt prime minister um, in the history of prime ministers in this country. Um, you know, we have, you know, we've seen Trump um, in, in um, the US. You know, and if it hadn't have been them, if it hadn't have been them, it would have been someone else because that's where we were heading with that, this sort of weaponization of the precariat in order to claim power and so on. But the problem, of course, is that that then creates this huge division within society, that lack of agency. So building agency into the system is the future, in my opinion, for how we progress as human beings. How do we design, how do we have a voice in the design of a system which has to replace this? Because this model, the model that we're in now, whether it's work or the economic model, the cost is not in the purchase price. We know the cost. We know the cost in terms of um, uh, environmental damage, not damage, absolute catastrophic damage um, that is a direct result of an economic model, where the positives are all the stuff that we discussed earlier. You know, the, the lights are on. I mean, this lovely place, we're talking over video. That's all the good stuff, but the bad stuff. And it's not just the environmental damage. It's the um, violent, um, structurally violent oppression of everyone that it's not optimized for. Now we're, so, you know, we're a couple of white middle-aged blokes. We're all right, mate. Yeah, except you know, <sighs> you know, the son of a Jew and the son of a Catholic in the early 1970s wouldn't have been described as white. You know, so Ooh, but we've all got we've all got a struggle, comrade. Agency is like one of these words. Every now and again, it becomes hip and trendy in, in work circles or education circles, and we, you know, it's like one of those words like thrive or you know, just you know, it's just, just words that come up, and it loses its meaning and loses its importance. For me, the importance of agency is belonging, um, which in the first interview we started talking about what it like to belong and not belong and everything else. It's becoming it's become a, a, so much of a bigger issue now, Phil, because 
you know, we talk about these things like the digital world and the physical world, like they're two separate things, but they're not. You know, the, the millions of decisions that are made in the digital world, it's a digital, digital re-architecting of society that's happening right now. So when we talk about kids coding and all that kind of, it's not about them becoming code monkeys, you know, for some major corporation. It's about them understanding that the digital world is a built environment and this well, is how you have about, a voice in about, their decisions. It's about children's entire sense of self being formed in a digital space. So much of what you've been talking about corresponds with our own research at the School for Tomorrow, which says that the agency comes first from the sense of belonging, then from the achievement of potential, and, and then we do good and right in the world. And, if, and, and But it all starts with belonging. We've been veering towards the advocacy piece. Let's talk about that next time, shall we? Thank you very much. Cheers, Phil. Game Changers is a podcast for those who want to change the game of school. Produced by Oliver Cummins for Orbital Productions and powered by a school for tomorrow, Game Changers is available on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Play and SoundCloud. Tell your friends and don't forget to subscribe. Let's go.